podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl. And this week, I am going to be talking to you about a new film. I typically don't do, like, brand new release discussions on this show, but being that it's a really incredible movie, I think we have to talk about When Evil Lurks. This movie just came out, I believe, on October 27th to um, Shudder, which is how I watched it. Um, If you have AMC Plus through um, your Amazon Prime, you can have AMC, Shudder, IFC, and I believe Sundance. So it's really a great service, and it really is very affordable for those four options. Um, Not sponsored, just can't recommend it enough because I use it all the time, so... When Evil Lurks is a 2023 release. It is one hour and 39 minutes, so it's relatively short. It is in Spanish. It is not in English. I'm sorry that I keep talking about foreign films for those of you who do not like to watch things that are not in English, but I'm not really that sorry because this is my show and I can talk about whatever I want. So looking to our Bible IMDb. In a remote village, two brothers find a demon-infected man just about to give birth to evil itself. They decide to get rid of the man, but merely succeed in spreading the chaos. Written and directed by Damien Rudna. He's also the same man who directed um, Terrified, if you've seen that. So, if you like Terrified, I don't know, it can go one of two ways. Everything I've read about this movie, the reviews are obviously going to be mixed. Um, But people often compare it to Terrified on whether, you know, which one they like more. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily compare the two of them, but this film is pretty fantastic. Um, Starring Ezekiel Rodriguez, Louis Zimbrowski... Damien Solomon. Really, really great. Um, It was premiered at a film festival. Why is it escaping me? It'll come back to me. Don't worry about it. Um, But yes, this is a horror masterpiece. Like, it really is absolutely bonkers. It is a new take on the possession film which I can definitely respect. I like something that is original. I like possession movies that don't take place in one house. Typically, you know, The Conjuring, The Exorcist, they're all taking place in one home location, like one house. Uh, This is beyond that. Um, I'll talk more about it after I tell you about the film. But I'm a big fan of the movie that everyone seems to dislike but me. Um, The Happening. M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, starring Mark Wahlberg. Um, And Zoe Deschanel. It really... The reason why they compare, or to me in my mind, like have a comparison is just because of the environmental factor. Which, again, I don't want to say too much about it before we get started. But I love The Happening for the mere threat at all times that you face in the film so 
this movie's very similar. You never know what to expect or where to expect it to be and when. Very much appreciate that. So with that being said, let's let's jump into our film notes. So our film opens, there's five gunshots fired in the woods nearby brothers Pedro and Jaime's home. There's obviously much concern. They're wondering why, you know, all of those shots were fired and they're pretty sure it can't be a poacher or anything like that because why in the fuck, if you were going to poach something, would you fire your weapon that many times? So they're like, look, we got to go investigate this shit. So they go out into the woods, but all they find ultimately is half of the body of a man and it's already, you know, it's showing some signs of decay. They're not sure if that is what occurred, um, like that night previously, but that is what they find. So later on their journey through the woods over the river, they find a rundown. I mean, I hate to be that person. I mean, it's a shack, essentially. I would hardly consider it a home, a livable home at this point, but. They, they find a woman that lives in the shack with her two sons. Now, one of her sons' name is Uriel, and Uriel is, he's obese, he's completely covered in boils, he overall looks very ill. Um, the effects in this film are really, really good for a lower budget movie. I mean, really good. So, he, he's a little grotesque looking, um, but overall, like, they're not really sure if this is just, like, a, a an ill man or, like, if there's something else wrong with him. So, during this conversation between Pedro, Jaime, and Uriel's mother, we uncover that Uriel is considered rotten. And they use the term rotten to basically describe someone who is being possessed by an unborn demon. And this demon has taken upon itself to infest Uriel's body in hopes of preparation for its live birth. Um, well, I'm not sure exactly what that might look like um, at this point, but of course, that would be the goal is for this demon to be birthed and take over planet earth essentially apparently the body that pedro and jaime found in the woods of the half of a man was actually a cleaner which is a person that safely kills people possessed by this demon in order to prevent its birth and thereby prevent the demon from spreading to others. And Uriel's mother had actually called for this man to come roughly a year before. So who knows if he was traveling that whole time or, or how, you know, what that might entail. But she had called for him a year ago. After they go to the police which are obviously not helpful. Um, Pedro and Jaime 
they can't get the police on their side. The police do not focus on the rotten. Like, that's not something that they can help with. I really can't say that I blame them because there's no way that, I mean, they're not trained in this. So, like, what are you supposed to do? Um, so Pedro and Jaime decide they're going to take matters into their own hands. And with Uriel in tow, the brothers go to a rural landowner named Ruiz, who is completely disgusted with Uriel and literally not helpful at all. So they take Uriel to abandon him. That is their goal. They put him in the, uh, they all pile up in the truck. They're going to take Uriel and dump him far away. Um, I don't know why exactly that was their first line of, of defense or their first plan. I guess they thought because of Uriel's condition that he wouldn't be able to like get himself back to, you know, his mother's home or where he was living before, or even to their community if they dumped him far away. So they, uh, take him they're driving for hours to a remote area and along their drive they swerve to avoid hitting a younger individual i believe it's a child in the road um and they discover at that point that uriel is no longer in the truck so the man that has been completely bedridden for years has somehow managed to escape and they all basically consider that a mission accomplished and head home big mistake so the next day, Ruiz is greeted by his pregnant wife, and she explains to him that one of the goats that they own is rotten. When they go outside, Ruiz takes a shotgun with him, and he can't tell which goat it is, so he fires off around into the air, scaring all the other goats away. When he does that, all, every goat runs away except for one. And this goat is not afraid. It's staring him down. It's like, do whatever you want. Like, fuck around, find out. So he takes the shotgun, puts its barrel directly pointed at the goat. He doesn't want to kill it. But the goat approaches the barrel of the gun to the point that it's touching the barrel. Basically, you know, poking, prodding, shoot me, I dare you, you're not going to do it. Ruiz's wife is begging him, like literally begging him hysterical to not shoot it because they're not supposed to use guns to rid a being, you know, whether that be animal or person, of the rotten. They're not supposed to use a gun. So she's like, please, please, please don't shoot it. Um, I'm pregnant. You know, we have a child coming. Like, I can't deal with the fact that this might take over my body or your body or whatever else. So she runs over to get an axe from a nearby, like, you know, stump, basically, that they have it in, like a little wood pile situation, chopping block. Um... Ruiz, he doesn't really care what she has to say. He's like, I'm going to kill it. I don't care. And shoots the goat in the head. Maybe one of the scenes, probably the only scene I've seen of a movie in the last, like, five years that just completely caught me by 
utter surprise is this one. There's a little delay, like maybe like a second or two seconds between the time that Ruiz shoots the goat and right up behind him comes his wife with an ax to his head. She kills her husband right then and there. I guess this demon is able to inhabit the body of whoever kills it. Basically, if it's not done by the means that it's supposed to be done in, which we know now that he's not supposed to shoot this, this goat, but he does it anyway. So what are we going to do? She comes right up behind him and just puts that ax in his head. I mean, absolutely insane. She's again, still hysterical. She's very upset. Then she decides, okay, Goat is dead. Ruiz is dead. Now I gotta go. So she takes the axe and starts smashing herself in the face with it. Until she pretty much gives up. Apparently she was under the impression that the rotten would possess her unborn child. So she goes ahead and takes it upon herself to uh, rid herself of any potential conflict of interest between this demon and her kid. The brothers, Pedro and Jaime, decide it is best if they collect their family members and leave town. They think they're going to escape this thing. They don't want to have any involvement with the Rotten, so they decide they're going to go. Jaime is in charge of gathering their mom, and Pedro is in charge of rounding up his family. So Pedro goes to his ex-wife Sabrina's home, where she lives with her new husband, Leonardo, and three children. Two of the kids are Pedro's, and one of them is Leonardo's. So they have two sons and a daughter. And the daughter is Leonardo's and Sabrina's child. So in this scene, I want you to keep in mind, there's probably the most terrifying dog I have ever seen in a movie or ever. It's enormous. Um, I'm sure it's a very sweet dog, but it is actually petrifying um, how large and terrifying this dog is. So Pedro's arrival and insistence on taking the three children and the dog with him and leaving Sabrina and Leonardo alone while literally offering no information to her as he's why, as to why he's taking these kids. Like he just says like, I need the kids. We got to go. We got to go now. Like, this can't wait. Um, everybody needs to pack a bag. And we're going to get out of here. And he keeps asking her for her car keys. So it's like, it's not enough that he, you know, disrupted this family, this little nuclear family's, like, entire life. But then Sabrina is outraged. She's like, you came. I haven't seen you. We haven't heard from you. You don't help us financially. Like, basically saying he's a deadbeat dad. And now you come in there and you want to be the savior of the day and we're all supposed to just do what you say. No, it's not happening. You're not taking my kids with you. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, and he's also not giving any information as to why he wants to take them. He's, like, intentionally vague about it. So while they're fighting and arguing and, you know, the screaming and the crying and the everything is happening between Pedro and Sabrina... 
the dog who had been just sitting next to the little younger girl, the daughter, just out of fucking nowhere bites her head, like bites this little girl in the head is dragging her around the house. And he ultimately runs out the front door with the daughter in tow. I mean, he's like taking her, we running down the street with her, Leonardo and Pedro, they run out the front door. They're like, okay, we're going to go find this dog. And Pedro is like such a sad character because, well, not, eh, kind of. But he literally just cannot not try to be the hero, but it's just not working. Um, so Leonardo is like, well, that's like my kid, right? I'm going to go save her no matter what. And he just takes off running. Pedro kind of is like, yeah, I'll run a little bit. And then he just kind of gives up. So he takes this as an opportunity to go back to the house, Sabrina's house, to gather the other two kids' bags and, you know, basically what they need so that they can leave. So when Pedro gets back to the house, he is not consoling Sabrina at all, even though she's freaking the fuck out because she doesn't know where her daughter is or what happened to her. And Santino is the younger boy, the younger son. Jair is the older son. Uh, Both of them are Pedro's children. And so Santino is obviously also crying. Like he doesn't understand what's going on. He's very young to be witnessing something like this. The whole time we're wondering where Jair is and he is actually upstairs in bed. He is um, autistic and nonverbal and he's not able to communicate, okay? Um, So Pedro goes upstairs to try to attempt to like gather some things for him and to get him out of the bed and kind of, you know, just tell him like, we're leaving, you have to come with me. he grabs a drawing of Hayer's and then they all go downstairs. So while they're in the kitchen, they're talking, they're trying to find where the keys are. Where are the keys? And while Pedro is trying to frantically gather everyone so that they can leave, he comes in the kitchen and he finds that Leo has come back and Leo is, he's got a gun now. And Pedro is like, please, Leo, please, please, please do not shoot anything. Like, don't shoot the dog. Don't shoot anything. And Leo is like, okay, fucker, like, help me find my kid or don't talk to me, basically. Um, He begs Leo to not use anything with gunpowder or anything of the nature. It's not going well, obviously. He's frantic and does not take that advice. The police are called. Pedro runs out when he hears a police car approaching the neighborhood and says, a dog bit, a big brown dog like bit and took my kid. Um, It's not, obviously the police are like, you called me for a dog? Like, really? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, The cop gets out and it's just like, look, Pedro, you know that you're not supposed to be around here. You're not supposed to get close to your wife, your ex-wife, Sabrina. What have you done? Did you make another mistake? Like, why are you here? And Pedro gives up because he's like, well, this isn't helping anything at all. And he says, if you see a dog, don't shoot it. And he runs off. 
So Pedro hears a gunfire. He follows the sound. He finds Leo with the gun standing over the dog. He's like, man, why doesn't anybody fucking listen to me? I just said not to ki- not to shoot it, and you did. So, hello. Um, so he runs back home to Sabrina's house. When he gets there, there's people in the driveway. Sabrina's in the driveway with their daughter. I think her name is Vicky. Um, and she's, you know, holding her. I love you. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I'm so glad you're okay. And... We had just seen this dog get absolutely devastatingly aggressive and physical with this little girl. And when we see her next in the driveway with everyone, she has no blood, no nothing. Like her face is completely fine. And that just doesn't really make any sense because how, right? How? Um... So they're loving on the daughter, on the on Vicky, on the little girl. And then she looks at Sabrina and says, Mommy, Daddy is going to kill you. Yep, he's going to kill you. So, you know. Sabrina kind of takes it at face value and she's like, Okay, weird. Um, but, like, I'm just glad that you're here. Like, maybe you're saying things that you don't mean or words that you don't know or whatever. But, like, let's just... Not focus on that, basically. She's happy to be reunited with her daughter. So then, um, finally in the kitchen, Pedro is able to find the keys to the car with Hayer's help. Hayer, again, is nonverbal, and he's like, where does mom keep the keys? And he basically takes Pedro's hand and lifts his arm up into, like, a little divot Um, that's built into the cabinetry of the kitchen and the keys are in there. So everybody in the car, they're backing out of the parking, you know, the garage and he's driving fast, right? Leo is driving fast and Pedro is driving fast. They're trying to get, Pedro's trying to get his kids out and trying to get himself out. Leo is coming back home in his truck and they almost have a car crash, but This is so terrible. Sabrina's still in the driveway and Leo takes his truck full speed and just absolutely runs into Sabrina as hard as he can. We can only assume that she's dead and that now Leo is being possessed by this demon because he used the gun to kill the dog and you're not supposed to use guns and everybody, nobody listens to anybody in this movie, which is a little frustrating. Um, so Pedro is like, okay, well, fuck that. I don't care. Um, I am leaving. I have the car. I have the kids. I'm going. So he goes to pick up Jaime and their mom. Um, and you know, they set off on their journey, journey out of town. Of course, Pedro and Jaime's mom has like a hundred questions to ask. Wow, you brought the kids. That's so great. What a nice surprise. Isn't this Sabrina's car? This is not your car. What did you get her to agree to in order for you to get this car? Don't the kids have school? Like, he's like, can you just get in the car, please? So they do. They tell their mom basically what's happening. And she's like, we are way too far away for stuff like that to happen. That stuff happens in big cities, the rotten. It doesn't happen here. 
So that's just kind of weird. Along the drive, of course, um, there's a lot of discussion going on. Pedro and Jaime are trying to co trying to convince their mom that they are certain that they saw, you know, a, a possessed person. They're they're sure that this happened. She's like, well, you could be wrong. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But you know, you've been wrong before in your life, so it's not crazy to assume you could be wrong now. But you know, she's pushing and pushing. And um, Santino asks his grandma, what is a possessed person? Like, what does that mean? So she explains to him that it's, you know, a demon that possesses your body and, you know, infects your mind and makes you do things you don't want to do and uses your body, but it's so it's no longer yours. And he's like, well, that sounds really, really bad. Like, that's horrible. And she says, it's really not that bad if you take precautions. So she says not to use electricity or like any electric appliances. Don't stay close to animals. Don't hurt that demon or the person infected. Don't take anything from the infected person that was important to them. And the most important rule is to never mention the evil by its name. And she starts to name basically the, you know, hierarchy of hell in the car which you know pedro is obviously like okay thank you that's enough that's great thank you so much oh and obviously the rule of not to shoot them with a firearm so um they pull over to a gas station whenever pedro was collecting his kids he promised to get them some apple like ice cream treat and so he's trying to do that but he doesn't have enough money He's asking, you know, his mom for money. She didn't bring any. Nobody else has any. And he's like, I don't even know how we're going to eat. Like, I don't even know how we're going to find any money. Um, and obviously they have a kid in the car, Hayer, who has special needs. So, like, there's a lot of things to consider here. There's a lot of things that they have to take care of. And Hayer is in the backseat of the car getting really, really, really worked up. Like, you can tell he's in a little bit of a panic. He's breathing quickly. He is, like, trying to verbally express himself, uh, you know, through a series of, of communicative sounds. But um, for the most part, everybody just kind of ignores him, I would, I would say. Um, but Sabrina is somehow calling the grandmother, Pedro and Jaime's mom. And so they didn't know she brought her cell phone with her. Um, and Santino is like, please, I want to talk to my mom. Like, please let me answer it. But we know that it really can't be Sabrina, right? Because she's dead. So, like, that just doesn't make any sense. Pedro saw her get hit by a car. The kids also saw it. Um, so Pedro gets out of the car. He takes the phone to, like, a, the road path, basically, and answers her call and she's like yo you took my kids and i want them back i'm gonna get them back and he just kind of tries to tell her like well the kids are fine she says you didn't take Kyrie's medicine with him he's gonna die like this this just can't happen um she tells him things like your kids don't love you 
they they don't ever want to see you they don't want to live with you they don't want to go to your house like i don't know why you don't understand it that's why i cheated on you is because they hate you that's why i fucked everybody like you mean nothing to anyone you're nothing she tells him that because what she said it wasn't already bad enough she's like you gave me a broken kid he you know that's why you wanted to get rid of him and you're a murderer like it just all of these horrible things so he gets fed up with that and he just takes a phone and smashes it call is over um Jaime comes to talk to him and he's just like okay we got to get it together because this isn't gonna work I don't even know how that phone call was possible because Sabrina is not alive so we gotta go so they go to a woman's home her name is Mirta. Mirta is a lovely older woman. She has no electricity in her home, but she tells Pedro and his family, you guys can stay as long as you want. I have plenty of room. I just don't have electricity. Um, and Jaime also promised Pedro that this woman would lend them some money. So they're hoping that they can get everything taken care of in a relatively timely fashion. Pedro doesn't really want to stay there. He wants to go to the city. He doesn't really want to implicate this woman in whatever he's got going on. Jaime is more doubtful. He's like, I don't know that we'll even be better off in a city. Like, this might just be a better option. Like, let's think about this. Maybe we're all tired, too. Like, maybe we could all just stay here for the night and rest. Obviously, Pedro doesn't really love this idea. He wants to get the fuck to wherever he wants to go. Um, so he's like, well, is Mirta going to give us the money? And Jaime's like, yeah, she is, but it's in the bank. So she can't actually give it to us until Monday. So like, maybe we should just stay until then and she can give us the money. And Pedro was like, well, tell her, make sure to tell her that we're going to pay her back because we're good people. It's like, at this point, who the fuck cares? And you're really not that great of a person. So... Why would she think that you're going to give her the money anyway? Pedro has to change um, Jair. He um, used the bathroom. He soiled himself. Again, he's not able to really take care of himself. Um, so Pedro stays outside with Jair and Santino, and they're working on cleaning him up, cleaning up the car. And Jaime's inside talking to Mirta, and he is you know making himself useful he's like helping her clean up some things and she says that kid looks rotten meaning he looks possessed Jaime is like well he's autistic I don't think that he is rotten right um but he was like you know you told me when you lived in the city that you have you saw people who were possessed like you saw them all the time and you got so used to seeing them that it didn't really bother you much anymore. And she was like, well, I don't really know why I would have said that. Um, have you ever seen one? And Jaime tells her, yeah, I think we have officially seen. Well, after what we saw today, I definitely think we've seen somebody possessed for real. Jaime basically can't articulate to Mirta what they saw and what was done today. And she's like, well, if you really did see somebody who was possessed, like, you would know. Shadows moving on their own, animals doing things they don't normally do. Like, you would be certain you wouldn't be so unsure. Um, and she's like, by the way, 
Is this the same brother who plugged the heater outtake at uh, his house? And Jaime says, well, that was just a lie that Sabrina told everyone so that she could keep the kids. So now we got to get into some sleeping arrangements. Later that night, Jair, he's not going to get out of the car. Um, so Pedro pretty much has decided he's going to stay awake that night with Jair and stay in the car with him, have Jaime, their mom, and Santino sleep in the house. So that's kind of what he's decided, I guess, will be easier for everyone, although I would hate to think that Jair would want to sleep in a car. Everyone's asleep except for Jair, and we get this amazing shot of the car. So it's like we're in the backseat of the car looking at Jair, and, you know, we have the window behind him. We see something approach the car window, and just a bloody hand slaps that window. Jair, no reaction, um, but we can only assume and we would be correct that Sabrina has arrived. Sabrina makes her way into um, Pedro and Jaime's mother's room where she's sleeping with Santino and she, the grandmother, she can't really see well. She's like, she took a sleeping pill. She's tired and doesn't have, you know, she's groggy, right? She's just like, this is weird. But Sabrina, I'm so glad that you came. And Sabrina is holding Santino, walking with him, swaying him, comforting him, essentially. And she's like, I came to get my children. They belong with me. I'm going to take them somewhere that no one can ever harm them again. And her face is completely, like, half bloodied. It's so, like half of her face has blood all over it. Um, she looks not super great, but apparently is not frightening to look at according to Santino because he's letting his mom hold him and carry him. Jaime wakes up Pedro from the car and is like, you got to come inside. Their mom is at the door waiting and she's like, I can't explain what I saw, but I think it was Sabrina, but I don't think it was her, but it looked like her and I just can't really tell what I saw. Pedro goes upstairs to investigate he sees Sabrina with Santino, and she's like, look, I came for my kids. They need me. I'm taking them somewhere. No one can harm them. Basically the same thing she told um, Pedro and Jaime's mother. And she just jumps off the balcony of the, you know, second floor of the house. So that's cool. They go outside to investigate. Obviously, they can't find... Sabrina or Santino, they're looking around, looking like crazy, and then Pedro magically remembers that he has not one son, but two, and goes back to the car to make sure that Jair is still there and that he's okay. Jaime rushes around, gets some lights, like flashlights, um, and Mirta is like, okay, Jaime, you gotta look at this kid, Jair. You gotta look at him. He's like, Mirta, I'm done with this. Like, he's just like that. I'm sorry. He's autistic. Like, he just looks like that. He just acts like that. And Mirta is like, no. Shut up and come look at this kid. Like, seriously. So they open the car door to the back seat, look at Hayer. 
his hands and feet have been like contorted in such a way like that I can't really explain other than it looks like a stereotypical like demonic possessed body um and she explains to Jaime look this kid really very very well could be possessed and can be possessed I understand he's autistic these demons can prey on people with autism. They can figure out their bodies, but they can't really figure out their brains. So they can stay in this limbo of inhabitation of this body for a really long time. So you really need to listen to me. Mirta orders Jaime to go get his brother to come inside the house. They need to stay in the house. She's um, talking to them about how sometimes, like, when we come in contact with these these possessed people or these rotten people, like the demon, it can manipulate us even though it doesn't inhabit us. And in the car, whenever the grandmother was talking to Santino about the rules, she said there were seven rules, but she didn't actually give seven of them. She only gave six. The seventh rule, which Mirta lets us know now, is that you cannot be afraid of dying. If you're afraid of dying, it will kill you. So she's like, Pedro, Sabrina would not be here right now or would not have ever come here to get the kids unless you were afraid of her coming to get the kids. So like, that's why she came. So Mirta is basically saying at this point, okay, look, this is the option. Nobody can go and look for the Santino. Nobody can go and look for Sabrina. The option that we have, and the only option that we have, is that we have to find Uriel and we have to kill him. This is like a pre-birth process. Like, this, this rotten is, this rot is taking over the lives of these people. Um, we have to find him, we have to kill him, we have to stop the process of the birth so that this doesn't get worse. Jaime and Pedro admit to Mirta that they actually do know where Uriel is because they had basically tried to dispose of him and they tell her the town in which they placed him. And she's like, you dumb fucks. You moved a man who you knew to be possessed. That is why this is happening. So Mirta and Pedro are set off. She has like a box of items that are like used probably in like a cleaning ritual that she's hoping to perform. Um, and she's talking to Pedro on the way to Uriel's location. And she's telling him about how her and her husband were frauds, like the man she married. Um, and one day her husband just threw up everywhere, threw up all everything like she says he literally threw up his family, which I guess I don't know quite. I think that might have been a translation thing, but that she says that he threw up the family that he ate the night before. So the dude turned into a cannibal. So Jaime was tasked with following in a different car, um, Pedro and Mirta. Grandma and Hayir are still at the house, so they're not really, they're not going along for this crazy ride. Cool. Whenever Jaime is driving, he sees Sabrina in the road. And Sabrina is like tearing at Santino's lifeless dead body with her hands and like 
it's very bloody and gruesome and disgusting. And Jaime is so pissed by this that he hits Sabrina with the car. She just can't escape getting hit by cars. Like, dead or alive, she's always getting hit by a car. Um, anyway, so he runs into her at full speed in the street, um, which I guess is supposed to kill her, even though my understanding is that they can't really die. But maybe they can if they get hit by a car. And in the process of doing this, he hits a tree, crashes the car, and that's pretty much the end of that escapade. Back at the house, um, Grandma's sitting on the chair, and in from outside walks Hayer. Walks perfectly upright and speaks. You know, he had been nonverbal this whole, his whole life, but he's speaking to her. I'm hungry, I'm cold, I don't want to get sick, like maybe we could have some tea or something. And she is freaked the fuck out, and rightfully so, because she knows something is wrong. Pedro and Mirta approach a schoolhouse, um, a rural schoolhouse, and this is where they find an entire school of children who are basically possessed also and being made rotten by this demon and are willingly protecting and enabling the birth of this demon. They go into a classroom, they find a group of kids, and um, the kids are, like I said, they're not helpful. They want the, the birth of this demon to happen. So uh, Mirta starts asking them, like, do you know where the demon is? No. Are you hiding him here? No. Are you hiding in here from that thing and also lying to me about it? No. Like, they just do whatever they can to, like, you know, get these people to leave. But Mirta goes outside and she's like, okay, I'm going to go cough up all my blood because I, like, or cough my lungs up because, like, this is just disgusting. And so they go outside and there's a little kid who's, like, coming up with a bicycle. And so Pedro is trying to ask him questions like, dude, are you sick? Why are you here? Was there somebody sick here? Did you find an injured person here? Like, the kid is not talking and he runs back inside. Myrta has her suspicions and she's like, I'm pretty sure these kids are just lying to us. I'm pretty sure it's in there. The little boy comes back outside and he's like, hey, are you looking for Uriel? And Pedro's like, yeah, I am. I absolutely am. And the kid is like, okay, well, um, he's actually not here. He's at my dad's house. My dad wanted to try to take care of him. And so um, you can find the entrance to that if you just drive out to the parking circle up there or the circle drive, whatever, up there. And there's an entrance there. So he gets in the car and Mirta is like, no, I really, I don't know. I don't think so. The little girl that Mirta had spoken to in the classroom comes outside and she's like, actually, he's lying. Uriel is at my house. Um, so yeah, he's not where the last kid said he was. And Pedro is like freaking the fuck out at this point. He's like, he opens his truck door and slams into this little girl and starts beating on her. And he's like, tell me where the fuck he is. I'm done. Stop lying. This is getting out of control. And Myrta had already just gotten done telling him to, like, stay calm and we should keep an eye on each other. But, of course, 
Pedro is the worst. Like, he's not listening to that. So Mirta, voice of reason, is like, look, if they're trying to send us other places, then that means that he's here. So they go into the auditorium of the school. There's like a hammer and some flower-type powder on the stage. And so Pedro picks up the hammer, opens up some of the boards of the floor um, of the, like, the stage. So it's under the auditorium's, like, stage. And uh, there's dead adults in there. So presumably the people who worked for and or ran the school, the kids have killed them and are keeping them under there. So... Mirta is like, okay, Pedro, go outside, get me my bag, my kit, and um, I'll wait here. But don't run, and don't be panicked, but of course he's not listening to that. Um, Mirta, whenever she's left alone, the kids are, like, approaching her, and they're, like, still trying to lie, still trying to, like, hold off and, like, get these people to not kill Uriel because they really want this demon to be birthed. And um, she's like, we tried to hide the bodies with lime and, like, you know, we really like the smell to cover up the smell. We really wanted to make this, like, a foolproof plan. Obviously, it's not. Myrta knows that Uriel is down there. So she gets her demon killing cleaning equipment ready to go. And Pedro starts to pick up more boards in the floor so that they can get down there and find out where Uriel really is. Uriel starts spouting off to uh, (laughs) Pedro, of course. He just can't get enough. And is saying to him, please kill me. Please kill me now. I don't want to do this. Myrta is like, okay, but, you know, I have to take this dagger, essentially, and stab it into the nape of Uriel's neck, so you're going to have to get him out. Well, Pedro literally cannot lift Uriel on his own. I mean, he's too heavy. And so he's like, I'm going to have to dismantle the entire stage in order to get to the nape of his neck. Like, I cannot lift him. And Uriel is like, okay, well... You know how you wanted to kill yourself and your kids in the house? Well, you can do that to me. Please kill me. Please someone. Okay. One of the little girls in the auditorium is like, hey, if you need one, there's an axe in the director's office. You should go get it. So he's like, wow, gee, thanks. Great. Love the help. Like, why would he listen to these little kids? I have no clue. Mirta's like, no, don't go. We have to stay together. Like, you can't leave. Also, it's a trap. Like, there's not really an axe, I'm sure. And so the kids end up killing Myrta after Pedro leaves the room and goes in search of this fake mysterious axe. And um, they're dragging her God knows where to do God knows what with her. But Pedro ends up breaking his way out of the director's office by smashing the glass in the door with a, a little stool and is just ultimately so defeated physically, emotionally, literally everything. And he looks up at the stage and Uriel's head is poking out through it. And he's like, Hey Pedro, what you doing over there? My guy. Um, so instead of going through with the ritual, like, you know, Myrta had planned where she was going to stab Uriel in the base of his neck and the nape. Um, 
the kids had dismantled the majority of the cleaning equipment, and so Pedro takes a piece of it and just starts smashing it into Uriel's head as hard as he can. Which, again, there's a killing ritual at play. I don't know why nobody wants to follow the rules. It's very, very upsetting. Unfortunately, all of their efforts mean absolutely nothing because the demon is birthed anyway. It's approximately the size of, like, I would say an 11-year-old boy. It emerges, it has pretty much black eyes, is covered in blood, and its skin doesn't necessarily look human, but it doesn't look inhuman either. It walks out the doors of the school, the kids follow, and they walk off into the sunshine, but not before the demon gives Pedro a three mark with blood on his forehead before leaving. And the kids follow the demon out into a field and off into the sunset. So I guess they ride off happily together. Jaime ended up going back to the house, Mirta's house, um, after the accident. And um, the demon doesn't kill Pedro. So I guess that's, I don't know what to make of that. But Pedro arrives back at Mirta's house. He greets Jaime. They embrace in a hug. Jaime was obviously terrified and... Pedro walks over to uh, Jair, who's like standing outside and looks kind of like he did the night before whenever he, you know, walked into the house and told his grandmother that he wanted food and wanted some tea and he was cold. So very interesting dynamic with everyone at this point. But they do end up returning home to Pedro and Jaime's house um, with Jair. Now you're gonna be thinking, what happened to grandma? Yeah. Um, Pedro gives Jair a bowl of apple ice cream, which I cannot tell you how incredible that sounds. I would love to try that. It looks like a green apple sorbet and um, sits the bowl in front of Jair at the kitchen table. Jair has kind of reverted back to Nonverbal communication at this point. Um, and Pedro goes upstairs to take a shower where he looks in the mirror and is trying to get the mark of this demon off of his forehead, but to pretty much no avail. Jaime makes his way over to Uriel's house um, and he finds Uriel's brother who says to Jaime and just explains to him, like, I heard these voices in my head. They wouldn't stop. I killed the man who was supposed to help my brother. And I cut up his body into little pieces. And I also fed most of those pieces to the pigs, but I also ate some of that body myself. And Jaime is like, okay, and what about your mom? Where is she at? And Uriel's brother says, what happened to her is the same thing that happened to your mom. Back at the house, um, Pedro is starting a fire. Jair has made pretty good progress on his ice cream bowl. Um, and he puts the spoon in his mouth one last time and starts to choke. So Pedro gets up to help him. He's like, it's okay. I'm going to put my fingers in your mouth. Don't bite. I'm going to help you. Pedro, uh, he has his hands in, in Jair's mouth and Jair just starts to cough up blood and hair. 
and it's uh, it's kind of like the movie Raw, where she's coughing up or throwing up her hair, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. Um, except this is worse. Um, blood is pooling out of Hair's mouth. He's you know th- he's getting rid of um, his grandmother's rosary, her entire head of hair, like just horrific, and he flashes Pedro a side eye look and just kind of, you know, taunting him essentially. And Pedro immediately recognizes that Hayer must have eaten his mom. And that Hayer is also possessed. He goes outside, Pedro does, and he just is so defeated, so exhausted, he just collapses on the ground and cries. It's just so sad so so sad and he's also frustrated because he's like how did i miss this my son has been possessed this whole time and he's just been like hiding it under the veil of like having autism like it's just so sad so it's just pedro and jaime that's the end it, it really is a bleak movie. It has nothing happy or good to offer you, dear viewer and consumer, but it is very interesting, upsetting, and very frightening, I have to say. So I think the one thing that I like about this movie the most is that even though it is a movie about possession, it's not about religion at all. So I, I do appreciate that, and... It kind of reminds me, like I said, of M. Night Shyamalan's film, The Happening. Even though I know that that's an unpopular movie, I've always really enjoyed it. In The Happening, there's something in the air. It possesses people if they breathe it, and they are immediately overcome with the desire to kill themselves. So one man, like, finds his way into a lion enclosure at the zoo. People are jumping off of buildings. People are just executing themselves in the worst possible ways. This family in the film, they try to escape their city that they live in to go find like a rural area where they hope that they can be safe because they're under the impression that this city, there's too many people close together. Like it's just too dangerous to be in. So hopefully if they go to a more rural area, then they won't have to worry about breathing in this air at all. But it doesn't really work that way. Um, the environmental theme, though, I really like. I, I, I do. I think it's so interesting. Um, when Evil Lurks has some similar themes for, like, the underlying theme of environmental horror, um, but it's not really carried out the same way. So, for example... One of the rules for dealing with the rotten is to not use electricity. Our whole entire lives revolve around the use of electricity, practically. So it kind of reminded me at first of um, Todd Haynes' masterpiece, Safe. The main character thinks that everything around her in her world is poisoning her. And so she relocates herself to a rehab facility in the middle of nowhere so that she can be free of the luxurious opulent world that she lives in but of course 
as we've talked about, safe is about socioeconomic class. And the woman and her family in that film are so filthy loaded with money that she has the privilege of going to an exclusive and expensive facility just so that she can get away from the modern world and live a life void of technology. People in real life don't really have that option all the time, right? Um, The people in When Evil Lurks are relatively poor. They are not of a high socioeconomic class. They are literally just trying to stay safe. There's not a lot of resources. Like They can't even go where they need to go where they think they'll be safe because they need money. So they go to Myrta and like try to get money from her. Um, it's just, I, but then Myrta even says like, well, you guys shouldn't probably go to the city. I don't know. It's, it's so odd the way that things played out, but yeah, the, the characters in where evil lurks are not wealthy. They're not, they're not, you know, financially in a good place. They're living, in poor communities, heavily reliant on agriculture, and the only hope that they have of escaping the rotten is crushed because they end up essentially in the same exact place that they started. It starts in Pedro's house and it ends in Pedro's house. It doesn't ever get better. Um, In fact, the whole thing gets worse, so it's not Uh, It's just so sad. Um, Another thing that I really enjoyed about this film is that no one and nothing are off limits. Like, using children and violence in the same scene, or using animals and violence in the same scene is, like, insanely controversial, okay? Even the director had trouble with this film because I was reading um, in a Polygon article that I will link, obviously. Um, You can't show, I guess, in Argentina, children and blood like on their faces or on their skin in the actual film itself. And I thought that the U.S. had strict rules about movies and with their stupid rating system and all, but this this one makes sense even though I think it's a little extreme the French would never by the way but I do like the fact that nobody is off limits nothing's off limits it's like children of the corn vibes a little bit right they they want to take over the kids and when evil lurks have this whole community that they've built in uh, in a school that they've taken over so that this demon can be birthed. The next generation of children are going to be rotten because of the the success of the birth of the demon that they're carrying out, which kind of leads me into this other, other um, thought process, I guess, which is that a lot of the rules that they have to abide by in the film require a lot of self-control. Like they can't use electricity, they can't, they have to to not be afraid of dying or they have to have like no fears of any kind because the demon will live off of that and thrive off of that. They have to, you know, not use guns. Like there's so many things that they have to abide by 
but none of them can seem to do this. Every time somebody gives somebody directions, they can't follow it. Literally everybody nowadays has a cell phone, so there's like technology and electricity in my pocket all the time. Um, at one point, Pedro answers the phone call on his mom's cell phone to find that his now deceased ex-wife Sabrina is on the other end of the phone. He made direct contact with someone being possessed by this demon via phone. His mom like had just gotten done telling him not to use technology or electricity and there he goes and fucking uses it. So it's like he literally cannot follow a direction if his life depended on it. Did he really lack the self-control to not answer that phone call? I think so. Um, but people also don't learn from their mistakes in this film, right? Myrta is like telling him not to listen to these kids. And then of course, Pedro is like, oh, okay, well these kids in this school, they must not be lying. So like, well, they lied to me before, but they're not lying now about the ax being somewhere in an office. So I'm going to go find that ax. Like, dude, what the hell? You just got done like getting mad at these kids for lying. You think they're not lying anymore? People, uh, it highlights really truly how often people act irrationally when they're in a situation of panic, a situation of fear. I just think it was an interesting way to demonstrate that point. Um, but like, if he never took that phone call from Sabrina, if he never tried to be the selfish savior of his family, if he listened when people told him things, it like, there's so many things he likely would have been the hero of this story if he were able to figure everything out and do as he was told but you know what they say about pride it always gets in the way circling back to the environmental aspect the rotten are like a cancer rotten people are difficult to escape it's nearly impossible. Cancer is one of those silent but deadly diseases you don't really know just by looking at someone if they have cancer or not, just like you can't know. Um, you can't look at one of the rotten and know that they're rotten. It's one of those diseases that the community cannot seem to rid itself of. And that is tragic in and of itself. In the same Polygon article that I will link, um, the director in an interview explains that this film was derived, the idea was derived pretty much directly from news stories that he was reading about health issues in Argentina caused by pesticides. These people, again, bringing up class again, right? Work is a little hard to come by. These big corporations are, are building farms and plants that, you know, these people are desperate to work at because they need a job and this is income that they can take home to their families and, and feed themselves and feed their, you know, their loved ones. They put themselves at danger, at risk every day that they go to work. And it's the simple fact that these pesticides that were being used, these chemicals that were being used in the environment in Argentina were making these people sick. 
very sick, like not just a little bit sick. Um, they work in the fields all day. They work for little to no money, but it's something. They get no help from anyone. People in big cities, people with money, people that own these fields, they don't give a fuck about the people that work for them. And in fact, it is predatory more than it's not. And I will argue that till the day that I die. It truly is. These companies are looking for cheap labor. They believe that's what they're getting, but they fail to realize because they're so far removed that these people that work for them are still human beings and that they should treat them with respect, like any sort of respect. Payment is not a form of respect. Not exposing people to life-altering danger and, you know, chemicals that are causing them to become ill is not taking care of someone. And how are some of these people to know, right? If somebody built a farm right next to me, or like a plant of some kind, and I started working there, I wouldn't know if the carrots that I was taking care of were being treated with pesticides that were, or so much, so many pesticides that like I would not be able to breathe if I go to work. I would expect to work for a place that provides me a safe work environment or a relatively safe work environment, as safe as you can. I would not want to be taken advantage of for the simple fact that my labor is a necessity for you and that just because you think you're paying me little, to me it might mean a whole lot. And the exploitation of that and those communities really, really... It breaks my heart. It, it really does. Environmental racism comes to mind. I have written a paper about environmental racism. I took a class about environmental policy, and this is obviously a topic that gets brought up a lot. Um, poor communities, or I'm talking in the United States um, in particular. Poor communities, large populations of minority people in a community, there's often the practice of companies building things that are not good for the environment, but they're also not good for the people that surround them. For example, in Pennsylvania, in a predominantly black community, there is a medical waste disposal um, plant facility, and it is literally poisoning the people that live around it. It's absolutely terrible. It makes me feel so sick to think about. Um, but back to, you know, the pesticides, these corporations, they buy land, they treat their employees like shit so they can make the most money possible. They don't care about the workers. They have families. These workers do. They have families. They have friends. They have loved ones. They have lives outside of their work. Like it is not their whole life to go to work. It shouldn't be anybody's whole life to go to work, by the way. I don't know if anybody out there needs to hear that, but take some time to not work sometimes. Um, not to mention, though, these workers were having children. Their children were being born with birth defects. Children were developing cancer. Like, kids were being born with cancer. Like, it is just... Children that are living in these poor areas are developing these, these illnesses. And, like, what about the secondary impact of these farms and these toxic plants? Like, nobody ever seems to care. The primary impact would be on the person who actually physically works there. But the secondary impact is on the people that 
that these workers live with or surround themselves with or the areas in which they live and the communities in which they live. Like, it's just... It's so fucking sad. So sad. And they can't escape it. There's no... There's almost no way out of it. There's no, like tried and true economic ladder that they can climb or proverbial economic ladder that they can climb. There's no, they can't just cough up some of money or get a loan or what have you to like get out of their situation. Like it just doesn't happen. And that's why I think it's so much more terrifying because yes, Todd Haynes film safe is very scary to me, but she has, in that movie, the main character, she has so much money, it's, like, hard to feel bad for her. Like, her environment, her sterile bubble that she created for herself is because she was able to do that with the amount of money that she has. These people in this film, and when evil lurks, they cannot do that. They don't have the means or the resources or the anything to be able to escape this, they are trapped in this, just like some of these workers are trapped working, you know, in in places with these pesticides that are causing so many health problems. Like, and in When Evil Lurks, the characters are trapped because there's nowhere to go. This is everywhere. These demons are everywhere. The rotten is everywhere. It's inescapable. It is completely inescapable. Um, also talking about the class issue, though, just before I wrap up here with my thoughts, one thing that I really liked was that in order to convey the, um, or reinforce the theme of being trapped in something, a lot of the times films will use like one location, like in possession films. So like in the exorcist, it all takes place in pretty much one house, right? Um, this possessed girl is not up walking around in the world and outside and whatnot. She's just at home other than if you want to get technical, the time that she goes to the doctor, but that's it. Um, they're all confined in this little bubble where they are, the feeling of being trapped is created because they're in the house and they, they pretty much can't leave. But when Evil Lurks created the feeling of being trapped in a totally different way, because it didn't all take place in one affluent, large, beautiful home. It took place everywhere. It doesn't confine itself to one home. And that's why I found it so interesting and so frightening because a lot of the times, like in Amityville Horror, right? You could just move out of that house and then your problem is fixed. Pedro and Jaime can't just like move out and the problem will be solved. Like it just, for them, it's not possible. So they're trapped in the greater world because of their circumstances, they're not able to get out of it. And this rot is everywhere. I would highly recommend watching this movie. It's really good. I know that there is some controversy regarding the third act of the film and maybe it not being as strong as the other acts. I would implore people who say that to check in with themselves. If we didn't have that third act, then I think the movie would have been pretty meaningless. 
that's just my opinion. You're allowed to have a different one. Um, but yeah, highly recommend. Very good. Very interesting. I love fresh ideas. I love new techniques. I love new ways of conveying the same thing, um, but just showing it differently. So I hope that you all watch it and let me know what you think. Before I go, I want to remind you that The Final Girl on 6th Ave is part of the incredible Morbidly Beautiful Network. Morbidly Beautiful is your home for horror. If you love horror in any way, shape, or form, then you are welcome with us. You can find my podcast and many others like it, insightful film reviews, and so much more. So head on over to morbidlybeautiful.com to check it all out and show us some love. You can find this podcast Um, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or requests, you can email me at finalgirlon6, that's the number six, at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on Instagram at finalgirlon6, that's also the number six. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you made it this far with me, I really appreciate you. Um, I hope you all had a wonderful Halloween if you went out and did anything or celebrated. And yeah, that's pretty much it for me today. So sorry for the longer episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you all so much for listening. And never forget that I am Sixth Avenue's very own. (laughs) 